Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 41, The Aftermath. Today I have on uh, the show with me Michael Burgos, who participated in the, in the Oneness Pentecostal debate uh, a few weeks ago. We're going to be doing a, a sort of post-mortem, as we call it here where I work. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with the term in the technical industry, it, uh, at least where I work, it, it's often used to just talk about how something, how a release went, how, how the, a particular release of a, of a new bit of software went. It doesn't necessarily communicate anything about the quality of that release, but it's just a way to um, to review what went well and what didn't go so well, stuff like that. Um, so we're gonna be we're gonna be doing a post mortem, as it were, uh, of the debate, and we're gonna be looking at its aftermath. So uh, now this is gonna be a very long um, discussion. It's in total about two hours, so I split it up into two episodes. This being part one. In this part one, we're going to talk about uh, our overall thoughts about how the debate went, uh, debates in general. We're going to look at some of the feedback. And then in the next episode, in part two, we're going to listen to uh, some clips from the debate and uh, uh, talk about our thoughts um, that we had on them. So, uh, you know, bear with the length of the, of the, of the discussion. You know, I, w- I won't spend too much more time in the monologue. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I hope you enjoy it. The, the one thing that, <laughs> that I need to, I guess, warn you about is that I, I, I had some technical difficulties that I wasn't aware of until after the discussion was over. I'm not going to give that away um, because I don't want to. Uh, I, 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 it may very well be that the, that the post-production I do is um, successfully masks what it is that happened. Um, and if that's the case, I, I, you know, that'll be great. And so I'm not going to give away what happened. But but suffice it to say that it's requiring a lot of post-production, um, far more than I anticipated doing. It has nothing to do with uh, with Mike. It's completely my fault. It had something to do with uh, the method by which I uh, discovered to play clips over the Skype call such that we could both hear it. Um, so, so the the point that i'm getting at is that i've been able to spend this morning doing the post production on the first half of the discussion um that you're going to listen to in this part 1 um but i haven't had time and 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 won't today to do the post production on part 2 so what i'm what i'm going to do is i'm going to release this episode as part of my feed today as soon as I, as soon as i'm done doing the post production work um part 2 however will probably come out tomorrow so uh, if you're listening to this right now, you could do one of two things. You could continue to listen through the first half of our discussion. I think that you might enjoy it. And, um, you know, I personally don't think there would be anything taken away from the experience if you wait a day to listen to part two. However, if you want to listen to them in a more seamless fashion, then go ahead and just stop the recording or uh, the, the, the audio right now. Um, and as soon as I publish part two, then you can resume where this picked off, uh, resume where we left off today. And then go ahead and listen to part two. I know that I'm kind of rambling and stumbling over my words. You know, I'm trying again to speak without a script. So, but anyway, uh, so you've got some options there. Um, I hope that uh, Mike will forgive me for my mistake. And, you know, like I said, I hope that you guys won't even be able to tell what it is that went wrong. If you can tell, and if, or if you have a suspicion as to what it is that happened and you can, and you can tell, uh, email me. I'd, I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be interested to know if it's, if it's very obvious. Well, one last quick thing that I want to say, um, and, and this, this comes up in, in today's episode with, with Mike, I've gotten some um, suggestions for future debates or, or willing participants for future debates. And, you know, if you've got any uh, issues that you'd like to hear debated and people that you'd like to hear debate those issues, email me at theapologetics.hotmail.com and, and let me know what your thoughts are. I'd, uh, I enjoy hosting debates on my show. Well, the one that I've done. Um, but I think they're useful, and I think that, uh, yeah, I think I'd like to host more in the future, moderate them, maybe at some point when I feel like I'm ready, <laughs> uh, participate in some of them. Uh, so anyway, yeah, th- that's about all I've got to say. Uh, let's go ahead and listen to the next promo in my rotation for Matt Slick's Faith and Reason radio show. There is a God. You are not him. 
Welcome to Faith and Reason, the apologetics, Christian-based apologetics show, where we answer difficult questions about Christianity. We expose the errors of such things as atheism, Roman Catholicism, evolution, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christian science, New Age, Islam, and various other religious and secular systems. Why? Because Jesus alone is the way to truth and life, and if you don't receive him as your Savior, you're lost and you're in trouble on the Day of Judgment. Do check out the uh, Faith and Reason radio show. It's also in a podcast form. Made available by Matt Slick over at the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. Uh, you know, you might have gotten the impression both from the promo and from uh, his appearance on my show last week, which I really appreciated, that Matt can be a little abrasive at times. I think he uses the word extreporous. Um, I'm going to have to look that up sometime and see what it means. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think you'll really enjoy the show. I think that he uh, addresses a lot of issues. I think that he uh, resoundingly refutes a, a, or a, you know, a lot of the arguments that people try to make against the Christian faith. So you can listen if you're in the idea in the Idaho Boise area, Monday through Friday, four to five p.m. Uh, Pacific time, on KSPD AM seven ninety. Or like I said, you can go to CARM.org. That's C-A-R-M.org. It stands for Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. You can go there to uh, watch the broadcast live sometimes, or or to subscribe to the podcast. Um, so I definitely recommend that you check that out. And with that, let's go ahead and move into the first part of today's discussion, discussing the aftermath of the Oneness Pentecostal debate with Michael Burgos. Before you I was a problem, now you're helping with the aftermath. I'm joined today by my guest and friend, Michael Burgos from Grassroots Apologetics, to talk about his recent debate on my show with a Oneness Pentecostal on the pre-existence of the Son prior to his incarnation. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mike. Hey, Chris, it's always a, uh, a pleasure and an honor to be with you. <laughs> the pleasure's all mine. How have you been since you last appeared on the show? Um, good, a uh, little relieved. Um, for a couple of, uh, couple of weeks there, I was spending all my free time aside from, you know, time spent with my, my kids and my wife and my church, uh, preparing and studying. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of stuff that you, you know, go to study for in a debate, you, you know, sometimes you never use. (laughs) (laughs) So on, on one end, it's, you know, maybe it'll stick with me to, I get to use it some other day, but, uh, Mm. yeah, but I've been doing okay. How about you? I, I've been hanging in there. You know, I, I share a similar feeling of relief. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of my time leading up to the debate preparing myself. I listened to several debates, and yeah, I, I definitely feel like um, there was a lot of work that I put into it, and I'm glad to have the episode out the door. Yeah, for sure. And I just wanted to tell you that um, in going back and reviewing the debate and, you know, and just listening to uh, other other uh, pieces, other uh, The Apologetics podcast, let me just say that the production quality, um, the quality of, of your research and everything, I mean, it's really outstanding. Oh. I mean, this turned into a really good resource for people, um, something that is going to have a little bit of staying power that people can refer back to. Hmm. So I, I, I appreciate that. Hey, no, I, I appreciate your comments. They they really touch me deeply. I, I I try to make it that kind of resource, and um, it really uh, it's really exciting for me to see that there are those who feel it's turning out to be just that. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for for your kind feedback. Now, just to let my listeners know what to expect, this is going to be somewhat more informal, perhaps, than previous episodes I've done with guests. Uh, I've got some clips that, that you, Mike, sent me today to play, um, but I don't have a prepared list of questions that I've sent you uh, or anything like that. You don't know what clips um, I've chosen to play and what it is that I want to talk about. So, you know, in one sense, this is really good. I think it'll be more conversational and perhaps a little more enjoyable to listen to. But on the other hand, you know, because this wasn't prepared beforehand, there might be a hiccup or two and uh, the listeners are going to have to bear with us. So... But, but what I want to talk about first, before we get into the debate you had on my show, I want to talk briefly about debates in general. As a result of the debate you had, I've got a couple of potential debates lined up for future episodes of the show. 
I've got a friend named Mike Felker from the Apologetic Front who's considering the possibility of debating a Jehovah's Witness on their two-class theology. Uh, and as you know, Mike, I've got an atheist who has expressed a willingness to debate someone on my show about the presuppositional apologetic method. But some listeners might be wondering how valuable and worthwhile debates like this can really be. You know, so for example, oftentimes it seems to me like debates don't really sway anybody. People, <laughs> people tend to walk away still agreeing with whomever it is that they agree with before the debate, regardless of which side really did the better job. Uh, what's more, Jim Wallace has noted in recent episodes of the Please Convince Me podcast, sometimes one participant, like Bill Craig in his recent debate with Sam Harris, can come away clearly the victor in that he, you know, stays on topic, he refutes the opponent's arguments, stuff like that. And yet, someone like Harris, who might be more personable and, and charismatic, can leave a longer-lasting impression in the minds of some people that, you know, witness the debate. And, and so they seem like the actual winner. And so I guess the question I have for you is, with these kinds of problems in mind, what do you see as the value in debates like these? Well, you know, Chris, I have listened to probably hundreds of debates. <laughs> um, I have listened to uh, every debate that has any kind of Christological significance that I that I could find. Uh, whether it be Hooker by Crook, I scoured the internet and various other places trying to find debates and listen to them and and so i in some sense i've sort of become a connoisseur of debates <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that's necessarily a good thing but um yeah i i mean theologically biblically i think there's a good case for debating um i think primarily it's the proclamation of divine truth it's to shut the mouth of the dissenter to, to call those um uh, uh, those ideas, those uh, lies that are contrary to Christ into account hmm. to devastate them and to lay them uh, absurd at the feet of the church. And I think that that really is the essence of, I mean, my methodology anyway, uh, That that's what, what really I'm looking to do is to um, defend the truth, not so much to convince the other person because... Um, particularly when, when debating a heretic, and I, you know, I don't say that in a, in a pejorative way. I sure. say that in, in simply a matter of fact way. Uh, when debating a heretic, a person who, because of some of the things that they believe, is, is what I would consider outside the, the Christian faith. Right. Um, you know, you want to take that, that error that they're in and demonstrate to the church, um, that that it's completely wrong and so um you're not necessarily going in to to convince the other person because those things only occur by i believe uh, a sovereign work of god the holy spirit hmm. um so i mean i i've seen debates where it's been a slam dunk like the harris uh debate <laughs> yeah. um you know i mean bill craig he's an excellent uh, speaker, he's very articulate, he's very personable in his own right. Um, but I think, uh, you know, as you would probably agree, there's some problems with his methodology. Sure. <laughs> and I think that because of that, um, inevitably, any uh, debates that he is in are going to foundationally suffer. I mean, whereas I've been in other debates, or listened to other debates, and um, felt like the truth of God was totally vindicated, and, and maybe you know the other side didn't even didn't even consider that a a massive landslide victory. Yeah. But I think it really, you know, you're talking about two different people with two different mindsets, two different goals, two different ideologies. Um, I actually just listened to a debate uh, the other day. Uh, Oh, it was Bonson and Sproul. Oh, yeah, the, that's a good one. That was on the um, presupposition, presuppositional apologetic. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, here's a debate between uh, two men that I highly admire. Yeah. Um, I, I've read uh, one of Bonson's books, uh, the Always, Always Ready book. And, uh, I, I, you know, you know I love Sproul. Uh, he's been a great influence on me and somebody I've really grown to love. Right. Yeah. Uh, but what a well-done debate and uh, very informative. And, um, 
solidified some things for me, and I and I think really that's what debates are for. I mean, the winner is the the audience, the listener, uh, the person who's paying attention closely who knows the issues. Like if you were listening to uh, if you were listening to that that I don't know if you caught that Rob Bell, uh, uh, I guess I called the debate for lack of a better term on on uh, the unbelievable radio program. Oh yeah. Um, you know, it was like listening to a theological politician. <laughs> um, but it was incredibly useful in that it can give you the fuel needed to prime you to be able to talk to a person like that. Hmm. And chances are we're all going to run into somebody who is probably to a lesser degree like that, hopefully to a lesser degree. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's just incredibly useful to be able to, you know, have experienced something like that uh, secondhand and, and to be able to use that, put that, you know, in the, in the tool chest, as it were. Sure. Yeah, so it, it really is in, in large part valuable in that it, it equips um, Christians to be able to defend the Christian worldview uh, from those who would present a opposing view. Um, in other words, it may not it may not so much be about trying to convince a person you're debating or even those listening. Although you know, I, I do think there is a certain um, chance that there are, in fact, a, a minority of genuine um, you know, people who sit on the fence. Fence-sitters. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so I I I, I totally agree with you that that um, uh, that there's some value there. Now. Um, Let's start to talk about the content of the actual debate that you had. But I just want to say from the outset that you and I have the luxury of talking about what was said without James present today uh, to defend himself and to give his feedback as well. And so I just want my listeners to take what you and I say with, you know, a grain of salt and test our comments in light of Scripture themselves. Uh, you know, just to point out, I think that James makes it possible to contact him at his website. Um, for those of you listening who want to present him with what Mike and I talk about today, you can go to, you can go listen to episode 37 where he, uh, where I announce his, um, website. So you can go there to contact him with the comments that Mike and I have today. But anyway, but before we look at some of the feedback that you and I have gotten, Mike, what sort of general thoughts do you have now that you've gone back and listened to the debate a, a couple of times? Um, well, so, so far as my, you know, I don't know, when I, whenever I look at anything I've done in retrospect, I'm always, I have a tendency to be very critical about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there were some things that I, I think I could have obviously done much better. There were some things that I think I failed at doing. And then I think there were some things that were successes. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I told myself going into the debate that I was going to focus like a laser beam on the biblical text and that I wasn't going to get bogged down in anything um, to the periphery, anything mm. of, of less significance. Yeah. And um, I think one of James's tactics in that debate was to, um, you know, throw up arguments uh, that were tangential to what, you know, they really weren't germane to what we were talking about uh, so far as the thesis or any of the directly related texts. Sure. So on, on that, you know, in that respect, I think I did well, but um, it, an individual who I've talked to a number of times and who I, I respect, uh, a fellow by the name of Nick Morelli, he's a, a blogger, he's a very prolific reader and book reviewer, um, he reviewed the debate and contacted me and said, you know, I really wish you would ha had answered some of the peripheral questions because I think they could be very useful to people on the other side. Yeah. And so maybe in retrospect, I should have entertained, um, you know, more of those things. And, you know, you catch all the times you misspeak and all that <laughs> stuff. So on that, on that note, I think I could have improved in various other ways. But overall, I think it was a, uh, something that should be uh, useful to the body. Hmm. So, are we gonna when we when we start talking about some of the clips that we're gonna comment on? Are, are we gonna get to hear some of what these sort of tangential thoughts were that maybe could have been responded to? Um, there's going to be there's there's going to be a few of those things, a few things that I think are related, but uh, you know. They were either said during the rebuttal or during a time, and, and there, because there were issues that I felt were of, of a greater priority, couldn't really get to them. Hmm. Um, you know, and 
I mean, basically, that's the idea. I, I, I by no means mean to bring up things here that I couldn't answer in James' presence. Uh, you know, that's not really... I, I in fact, talked to James recently um, in relation to a, a blog post that he made. Uh, uh, the blog post was uh, calling to uh, task with foreign theology. And so he is very accessible on his blog, and he does answer comments. Huh. And so, like you said, if anybody would like to get in contact with me, it's accessible. Uh, but yeah, definitely some of those periphery issues, and then some of the issues that uh, I think are directly related to the, the the main thesis. Right. Okay. Well, let me let me share with you a couple of thoughts that I had. Um, f- first, I, I noticed that James never really made a positive case in his rejection of the debate proposition. And, and I've noticed this propensity that oneness folks and other Unitarians seem to have. Uh, it's, it's a sort of assumption that by default, we should uh, assume that the Old Testament picture of God is unipersonal, uh, that, that, the, that the monotheistic language of the Old Testament immediately lends itself to that as if their case goes without saying. What do you think? Do you, do you think that oneness and other Unitarians are right in assuming that it's the sort of default position and that somehow it's incumbent solely upon us as Trinitarians to prove otherwise? No, not at all. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, that is what in you know Christological Trinitarian apologetics is called the Unitarian assumption. Hmm. That's the number one culprit. And I think you're right about James's opening statement. It was a a rebuttal. It wasn't an <laughs> opening statement. Right. Um, and because it was a rebuttal, he didn't provide me with a lot to rebut, unfortunately. I was, you know, hoping that he was going to present, you know, uh, something there, uh, you know, positively to negate the thesis, but it never really crystallized. Yeah, you know... Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah. So what I was going to say was, even though I think that the, their positive case is very weak and it would be easily um, refuted, I, I think that that'd be useful because um, some of the texts that could have been brought up in an opening argument by James, uh, so for example, the Shema, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, you know, we could address the Echad issue, you know, demonstrating that that word um, carries with it the meaning of typically of, uh, you know, a, a plural unity, uh, one bunch of grapes, for example, you know, this is just one example of many in which I think it would be really useful to see the opening argument refuted. Yeah, I mean, there are things like that, like the, as you said, the Echad, the Yahid distinction. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I would have made, made that one. Hmm. Uh, I, I've always felt a little bit, I mean, because to me, the Shema basically tells us there's one God. Yeah. It doesn't say anything about the nature of that one God, and so I, I, I feel that way about all the monotheistic decrees in the Old Testament. I think the most we can derive from the Old Testament um, is these incredibly profound hints, hmm. um, and and they're they're found in many places. But <laughs> yeah, don't give them away. We're going to be talking about those in a little later. Oh, absolutely. No, no, I won't. But I I think you're right. I mean, I'm surprised that he didn't go to some of the classic oneness Pentecostal proof texts, John 14. Uh, where, you know, Jesus' dialogue with Philip, um, John 10.30, things like that. Uh, you know, that was unfortunate. I mm. think we, I think the listener would have benefited greatly, I, I think, in, in hearing that pre- presented. And But I, I, don't, I don't know if it's something among oneness Pentecostals uh, who happen to be involved in apologetics, but that seems to be a theme. Uh, a person by the name of Robert Sabin, uh, a oneness apologist. He's, uh, very highly regarded in oneness, uh, Pentecostalism. He's a prolific writer and a church planner. He does something very similar in all these debates. He's debated Robert Bowman. Um, he's debated, uh, Dr. James White. Uh, James White, exactly. Which, yeah, wow, was that a good debate? <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, he, he does something very similar. Um, the person who I think is, you know, approaches the debate and tries to build a positive case, but in doing so, actually explicitly betrays their unitary assumption is David Bernard. Yeah. David Bernard is a very articulate, a very genteel, and a very intelligent man. And when he makes his case for the oneness doctrine of God, he even says in every single one of his debates, and I've, I, 
the ones that are published out there, I've, I've listened to them all and taken them apart and examined them. He says, look, we're going to go to the Old Testament to define who God is. Hmm. Even though we believe, he'll even use the word, even though we believe in progressive revelation, we're going to go to the Old Testament because you've got to learn your ABCs <laughs> or you learn your calculus or whatever. Yeah. And that's actually something that James said himself in our debate. But the problem is that that is assuming Unitarianism. Yeah. Because you cannot go to the lesser revelation and define God according to assumptions you make therein. Yeah. The first work of Christ is, is the greatest revelation of God that we're ever going to have. Now, wouldn't it be wiser to um, examine those uh, revelations before we, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of looking, kind of like as Robert Bowman put it to Robert Sabin during his debate, looking through a telescope the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, um there there's certainly hints about the nature of God and other issues in the Old Testament, but the but the revelation certainly isn't complete. Um you know, if you look at for example, Jesus in his resurrection body before his ascension, um you know, he he goes through the Old Testament with his disciples to show them everywhere that it spoke of him. Um you know, that 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 should it seems to me only possible if uh, the Old Testament wasn't fully, you know, uh, wasn't complete. It wasn't complete revelation. There was something lacking there. Uh, maybe lacking isn't the best word, but there, it, it wasn't, it didn't yet fully reveal the nature of God and of the coming Messiah. And so Jesus had to reveal that to his disciples. So it really does seem like we need to look at the Old Testament through the lens uh, of the new, or as you put it, the right way through the telescope. The thing is, ultimately, I think it comes down to authority because, look, the Unitarian goes to the Old Testament. They see singular personal pronouns there, and they're going to say this validates my right to believe in a Unitarian God. These, you know, and and some of the more uh, what I would argue is the more uh, studied and um, some of the best Unitarians, people like Anthony Buzzard, who who I've actually dialogued uh, for a long period of time with, that's where they, you know, that's that's their stomping ground. Those personal pronouns, um, things like that, they will constantly go back to that and say, look, 20,000 personal pronouns in reference to God, I'm yeah. wrong. And what they fail to understand is authority. That, look, the Bible can tell you what it means by one God. Right. Uh, and that's its authority. It's, it's the divine revelation of God. You cannot simply assume what it means. And, you know, that really is the foundational uh, thing. It's a hermeneutical problem uh, between oneness Pentecostalism or any other Unitarian. And if you notice, every argument that I presented in, in uh, that debate was the same. Those texts that I utilized would be the same exact text if I were to debate Anthony Muslim. Or if I were to debate a Christadelphian or Jehovah's Witness, hmm. many of those texts would have been the same exact text because they all make the same error. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree. Well, here's a second thought that I that I had before we get into the feedback. Something that seems really obvious to we Trinitarians never never came up in the course of the debate, and that's the interpersonal communication between the Father and the Son. I have some thoughts about that, but but what do you think? How is it that modern modalists like James Anderson and the like attempt to account for the communication between the Father and the Son if Jesus Christ is, as James explicitly affirmed in the debate, the Father himself incarnate? Um, well, what they would say is uh, they can never, you know, it's it's foreboding, as it were, to uh, use the word person. So they, they won't go as far as to say that the Son is another person uh, other than the Father, but what they will say is that uh, the Son is the distinct, physical, fleshly manifestation of God, God operating in a, a human, a genuine human mode of existence, and that that uh, that human mode of existence and God's transcendent sort of uh, spiritual existence that is uh, completely divine is capable of... of they're, they're capable of, an, of what seems to be an interpersonal 
uh, relationship. Hmm. And look, obviously, that is just nonsense. Yeah, definitely. And and you used a really um, pertinent word there when you said it seems like interpersonal communication. Because as much as they would will try to affirm that it is a genuine interpersonal communication, nevertheless, it seems to me, and, and I think this might come through in one of the clips we're going to play today, James talks about Trinitarian languages of its nonsense language, and yet what he wants us to believe is that when the Son speaks to the Father, it's really the Father speaking to himself, but from one awareness of himself as human to another awareness of himself as divine. Um, you know, th this seems to me more ludicrous than just about any straw man of our position that he and other oneness folks might try to set up and knock down. You, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I would say. I mean, um, look, I, I have read uh, quite a few quite a few articles by Jason Duell, but, you know, I've read all of the Bernard's books and tried to really understand how you can get um, the relationship of the Incarnate Son and uh, God the Father from one person. Hmm. And <laughs> basically, you know, what you have, uh, on one side you have David Bernard saying, well, you know, this is the he won't use the word natures anymore. He's sort of stepped away from that. He used to be a little bit more, a little bit more uh, comfortable using that terminology. But he, what he used to say is, look, uh, a quote from his book, "The Oneness of God," um, is that uh, in in relation to the, the the Father speaking to the Son and explaining that communication, he, he says, "quote It can only be that the human nature of Jesus prayed to the eternal Spirit of God." In essence, what he is saying is. It's the human nature praying to the divine nature. We know that's rubbish. <laughs> right. And even Jason Duell, uh, or Dooley, however it's pronounced, um, says that it's rubbish. In an article of his, he says, look, uh, quote, to explain the prayers of Jesus as the human nature of Jesus praying to the divine nature poses problems. For one, natures do not pray. People do. Hmm. Secondly, Scripture declares that he prayed from the, to the Father, not to himself, uh, end quote. And so, ultimately, the, the best explanation that they have uh, right now is that um, the interpersonal relationship between the Father and Son is a relationship that is between the transcendent God and his incarnate self, huh. um, which is ridiculous because... Sure. It, 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 it falls along the lines of the same reason by which Duel rejects the other uh, explanation between natures. And, and there's another problem about this, too. Look, if the Oneness Pentecostal wants to go and explain the communication between the Father and Son by virtue of the Incarnation, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Because God the Holy Spirit communicates with God the Father in Romans chapter 8, verses 26, 27, we have the Holy Spirit himself who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Right. And he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Uh, that's a subject-object uh, distinction, and it is something that is done for one party to another, and the, the lexical data for the, the verb there to intercede is exactly what it should be. So I'd, I'd really like to hear or read something along the lines from the Oneness Camp as so far as how they explain that one, but I haven't been able to find anything. I don't expect to. <laughs> well, well, yeah, because they don't they don't have an incarnation to turn to with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, no, there is no. I mean, I uh, I think a real a real weak uh, Achilles spot for one is Pentecostalism is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because um, their explanation of the personality that the person of the Holy Spirit is so. Um, it's so trivial. Hmm. I mean, David Bernard in his book, uh, The Oneness of God, says, look, God the Father is the Holy Spirit. Because, look, we know that God is a spirit, and we know that he's holy. So there you go. I mean, it's, <laughs> And I, I'm, I'm giving a pretty close paraphrase for that. Yeah. I mean, that's bad it is. And so, yeah, I think definitely there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's some spots to stick your hand in and, you know, point some things out to one of Pentecostals on, on that end. Yeah, definitely. Maybe we got to do a, a round two on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> 
Well, well, let's move into uh, the feedback that you and I have gotten. I've gotten some, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But um, tell us about some of the feedback that you've received in the, in the aftermath of, of your debate. Um, well, I actually had the benefit uh, to speak with a, a friend of mine by the name of Dr. Edward Dalcor. Um, I've mentioned him on your program before. He's written a, a great book on uh, oneness Pentecostalism. He's done a, a lot of other uh, work that I've been tremendously blessed by. Um, and he said that, uh, that he felt that uh, James was paying true homage to his Unitarian assumption. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, he also uh, said that the debate was well done, and so I, I appreciated that. Uh, yeah. Another friend of mine, um, who I've only known for a short time, uh, a fellow by the name of Mark Sessions that I met off of CARM, uh, 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 the uh, Christian Apologetics uh, Forum. Uh, you know, of course, Matt Slick, your your last guest, uh, his website there, and. Mark is uh, an individual who has a much better grasp of the Greek language. Um, you know, I'm just wrapping up now. It's his beginning for grammar. He is uh, someone who is uh, is quite far advanced beyond that. Uh, he's been a great help to me uh, in some of the things that he's written. But hmm. he found the debate incredibly useful. Uh, he said that uh, particularly the inconsistencies that were brought out in the uh, cross-examination. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to get to some of that. Yeah, I mean, he was just uh, very supportive. But for those couple of, and I think one or one or two other people uh, sent me an email that I, I did know and, and were very kind and supportive. But um, for those couple of positive <laughs> positive <laughs> comments and, and sort of congratulatory, uh, appreciative uh, statements from people, I did receive quite a bit of uh, email um, and uh, blog comments that were, were very critical of my uh, methodology, very critical of my uh, some of the things that I said. Um, and they were both from Oneness Pentecostals and from uh, Christians, from you know Trinitarian Christians. Wow. Um, yeah. So I it was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, I was expecting to to get it from. Uh, my one is Pentecostal's friends, but I didn't expect to get it quite so, quite such a bad drubbing from some of my, uh, you know, evangelical uh, brothers. But uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what was some of the negative feedback that that Trinitarians had to offer you? Yeah, um, I got two criticisms. Um, one from an individual who wasn't quite so uh, negative. Um, another from an individual who was very dogmatic and very, very condescending. And the, the arguments that they suggested that I should have used were that the Trinity is a doctrine that is revealed in the Old Testament hmm. and that there are various uh, proof texts that I should have gone to to demonstrate the Trinity uh, from those. And, and I really, you know, sold the... One fellow said I... Uh, uh, what did he say? I uh, gave away the farm <laughs> in, in admitting that uh, the Bible's progressive revelation and that eternity is an intertestimonial uh, revelation, but it's seen in the pages of the New Testament. Hmm. And so um, I, I, I just disagree, and I think the you know quite a few uh, quite a few of my brothers would disagree as well. Sure. Um, I don't you know I don't try to. I, I try to be very careful with the way I use the Old Testament. I don't want to take things out of context and make them mean what they say. Um, you know, mean things that they don't say, rather. I mean, there was a text that I was looking at, uh, I think in Isaiah 44. Um, I can't quite remember the, the reference now, but it had to do with uh, God, the God of Israel, and his Redeemer. Hmm. It said in and so I thought, wow, that's very interesting language. This could be a, a hint of uh, the pre-incarnate, uh, pre-existent Son as with the Father. And in looking at it closer and talking to some Oneness Pentecostals, interestingly enough, on Karm, I thought, well, you know, that may be, but it may not be. 
Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I've, I've seen similar texts, texts which uh, at first um, uh, you might want to point to in, in defense of the Trinity. I mean, I think there's an Isaiah 9 or something where he talks about God has sent me and his spirit. And uh, That's Isaiah 48. Right. Yeah, and, you know, so most of the translations do seem to support that idea, but I looked at one translation, and, and you know, one translation doesn't suggest that all the other ones are wrong, but the, the, the translation rendered it in, in, a, in a different way. Um, one that seemed a, a legitimate possible uh, translation of the original text that uh, that allowed for something other than the Trinitarian interpretation. And so, you know, you got to be careful. Just to say about Isaiah 48, that one has always puzzled me a little bit. And I've read a lot of commentaries on it, and I've tried to examine the Hebrew as best I could using, um, you know, second and third party means. But I think... What you have there is a proleptic statement because of the timing, uh, just the, the timing of it. it. You know, what it doesn't really, it does speak to the Trinity, but it speaks to the Trinity in a future tense, if you will. So I think, um, you know, I think it really translation, it's a question of where do the quotation marks end? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but I think that um, it is a very interesting text, but not one that you can use in a debate with the Trinity. Right. Yeah, definitely. You don't you don't want to build your case on questionable passages, passages which might legitimately be taken in uh in in other ways. Well, let's uh let's shift gears and talk about some of the feedback that that I got. Um and you know, this this first bit of feed for first bit of feedback, it comes from a friend of mine and and who suffers through just about every episode I do. And so, you know, I I appreciate that, but he he had sort of similar comments to the ones that Jim Wallace had regarding Bill Craig. He felt that whereas you may have had better arguments, that uh, some of that might have been lost on some listeners who may have found James Anderson a little more enjoyable to listen to. And and there were there were two things that he thinks maybe you could have done better. The first thing is he, he felt that the quality of your microphone wasn't as good as James's, and you know I would probably have to agree. So I guess what I want to know is what do you use to record, or, or what is it you're using to record right now? Yeah, you know I'm using my laptop, and that's probably the worst uh, one that I could possibly be using. <laughs> I ought to go out to Walmart or you know Best Buy or somewhere and get one, but I've <laughs> I've been slacking and, and busy. Uh, so yeah, I definitely will do that. Yeah, well, I mean, we can't always spend money on podcasting microphones, but yeah. Well, so, the, but the second thing is, and this is perhaps a little less specific um, by its very nature, and, and um, he felt that James spoke in a way that maybe was more dynamic, more personable, more charismatic, and and he wants to know, he wonders if, if you have much experience in, in public speaking. Is is that something that you have much experience in? Um, yeah, I, I can see why somebody... Uh, listening to James might thank him with his uh, very endearing southern uh, um, accent was a little bit more winsome so far as what the way he sounded. Hmm. I do have a little bit of public speaking um, experience. I've, I've preached in my church and uh, things of that nature, but I don't have a lot, and I was incredibly nervous. Yeah, I understand. Um, I've never had a, a live, moderated, formal debate like that. And I really didn't know where James was going to go. You know, I had no idea. And so <laughs> I was pretty nervous and I was trying to, I had somebody with me doing the timing, um, but I was just incredibly nervous. And so I think that my nerves uh, got the best of me at some times. And, you know, you're, you're also trying to um, write things down hmm. and uh, remember things and, oh, you know, this, I got to mention this and, you know, I'm going to write this down too. So... <laughs> It gets a little bit, uh, you know, like how many balls can you jump, you know, juggle at once? Right. But yeah, yeah, I definitely uh, sympathize with your friend, and I think he's absolutely right. I I definitely need to work on my uh, winsomeness, <laughs> and uh, you know, maybe I'll listen to more Greg Kokel. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think he's probably the most winsome guy I know. Yeah, he's great. Well, that you don't know that I know. Right, yeah, right. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I think that with time um, and as you get um, more public speaking experience, more more debate experience, you, you, the nerves will, will start to settle down. It certainly has with me. So I think that this is going to come sort of naturally in time. But there might be some specific things you could do to, to, to get a little better. My, my friend recommended something called Toastmasters. Have you, heard of, uh, have you heard of Toastmasters? I haven't, but it sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, 
I have given a toast or two, and it's been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know a lot about Toastmasters, but it, but it seems to be you know something designed to help with public speaking experience. But even if you weren't to do something like that, I think that over time, like I said, with with more experience doing debates and stuff like that, this will um, sort of take care of itself. But now let me move into uh, some other feedback that I got. There was a listener, named, a listener named Mike who wrote at my blog uh, or at the podcast feed. I think Mike did a good job at bringing out some obvious contradictions made by James. Uh, you know, and I certainly would agree. But in response to that, uh, Manuel, whom we spoke about in the debate, he wrote, I don't think so. Mike never did say how many spirits Jesus had, even with the <laughs> moderator trying to get him to say something and prodding him and showed all of us the limits of his creed, made Jesus a hybrid mix of neither God nor man, just like I knew he would. <laughs> now, you know, obviously this is a, a really ludicrous statement, but uh, just to really put the nail in the coffin and show how ridiculous Manuel's claims are, I want to play a, a, a clip. Um, this was during the Q&A period, and, and I posed to you a question that Manuel had sent me, and I think that your response, and, and this is going to be a little bit long, so bear with the, you know, the length of this clip, but I want them to hear it, I want the listeners to hear it in its entirety, because um, you really do very clearly and explicitly address Manuel's claim about um, how many spirits Jesus had and whether or not he was a hybrid mix. So uh, let's, let's go ahead and play this clip from um, the Q&A period of the debate. Uh, this is from an emailer named Manuel, uh, who I believe that you've got some familiarity with. He wrote me saying, since Mike's version of Jesus makes him a hybrid, a mix of God and man with no distinction, a new species or hybrid of neither man nor God with no human spirit, but a divine spirit only. Oh my goodness. How is his Jesus able to redeem mankind as our kinsman redeemer that Ruth spoke of? Um, yeah, I, I, I do know this individual. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty convoluted and loaded question. Yes, I would yes. say that uh, Jesus' two natures, his human nature and his divine nature, are not a hybrid mix, but rather they are separate but held by the one person of the Son. Um, the Son existed in the form of God and then took upon himself human flesh. Uh, I'm a Chalcedonian Christian. I affirm the definition of Chalcedon, and, and we affirm what the scripture teaches, that these natures were not mixed. So I, I'm not really sure where Manuel has gotten the idea that uh, I believe in some mixture of natures, but uh, I certainly don't, and, and therefore his question doesn't really apply to me. Okay, did, did Jesus, ha he, he claims that you say Jesus had no human spirit, is that true? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, no. I, I want to, can I speak up for um, uh, Mike here? Mike yeah, but I'm going to pause the timer. Okay, Mike has explicitly said that he he does believe Jesus has a human spirit. Okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a dualist, classic Christian dualist. Uh, Jesus, I've, heard, I've read him saying it with my own. I've read it with my own eyes. Uh, Jesus is like us in in all respects, yet without sin, and I believe that that would include a human soul or spirit or whatever kind of language you want to couch the immaterial human aspect in. Um, I've defended that in, in, in published articles about that. So, yeah, I certainly do affirm that Jesus had a human soul. Okay. Now, but did he have, to use Manuel's language, uh, did he also have a divine spirit? Did he have two spirits, one human and one divine? Um, <laughs> the, the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't use the word spirit in a unequivocal fashion. Um, the, the, the fellow who asked the question has to understand that when we speak of a human spirit, we speak of that uh, aspect of humanity in which the consciousness uh, rests, that eternal thing that is um, who we are that is not our flesh. Uh, but when we speak of the Spirit of God, we could be thinking of the Holy Spirit, or we could be speaking of um, the incorporeal essence that is God. I mean, God is not a corporeal being. He is a spirit. And so to ask if Jesus had two spirits really misses um, the way the Bible uh, speaks about that word. I think I understand. So you, you would say that he had a human spirit, but that he is a divine spirit. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, so uh, so Mike, I, I want you to comment on that in a second, but um, first I want to co uh, commend James for defending you against Manuel's false claim. I think that was awesome. Um, but the reason I'm playing this is because note how the clip ended. It, ended. it ended with me asking, so you would say that he had a human spirit, but that he is a divine spirit. 
uh, and you affirmed that. So it seems to me that you very clearly did answer Manuel's question. Um, you know, you both addressed the hybrid issue as well as the how many spirits did he have question. And so it seems to me that people like Manuel are really just grasping at really flimsy straws, hoping to find some reason to reject our position. Yeah, you know, this fellow is um, a person who I believe is emotionally disturbed. <laughs> I've talked uh, to him dozens of times. I've known him for probably a period of three to four years. Um, he's incredibly unstable, nonsensical, illogical. I've I've tried to be, be long-suffering with him. He's been very uh, slanderous and hypocritical of me. Um, but you know, there comes a point with the unbeliever when they are so hard-hearted that you, you simply have to knock the dust off your feet. And I'm, <laughs> I'm getting to that point with this individual. I don't talk to him regularly too much anymore, but hmm. obviously he did have a little agenda that he was pushing. And yeah. just to comment on the quote, you had said that Jesus is a divine spirit, but has a human spirit. Right. I, I did agree to that on the debate. But I think only for the sake of brevity, just to tweak that a little bit, what I would say is that he is a divine spirit, but he is is also a human spirit. Not oh. that he not that his human spirit is simply a possession. Right. But that that actually is something that is who he is. Uh, obviously his incarnation is truly human. Right. Yeah, that, that's a good point because, um, you know, the classic Christian dualist position, if you want to call it that, isn't uh, isn't that we have uh, a spirit. It's that you know, fundamentally, our identity is uh, a spirit, and and so in in that sense, Jesus was is both God spirit, both you know, both divine spirit and human spirit. Um, but but still, you know, the, the issue really is that uh, Manuel's trying to play loose with. Um, He's trying to equivocate the kinds of spirit uh, that Jesus is. You know, the, the divine Holy Spirit is not the same kind of spirit as the human spirit is. Yeah, like, uh, does he also have two heads? You know, it's just it's just <laughs> ridiculous and very juvenile, uh, you know, argumentation from a person who tends to be pretty juvenile. Hmm. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people who get involved with cultic understandings of God, and I don't mean this in a in a way to disparage James or anyone else, but I find that a lot of people who get involved in that um, tend, to, tend to have a very wooden, literalistic understanding about things. Yeah. And I think it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, it is definitely. All right, so there you there you have it. That's part one of our discussion with Michael Burgos, discussing the aftermath of the uh, oneness uh, debate that he had on my show a few weeks ago. Uh, stay tuned for the next episode tomorrow or the day after when I've had time to do the enormous amount of post-production that I've got to do um, to, to, to hear it at part two of our discussion where we'll play some more clips and comment on uh, how we think those went. So, um, yeah, until then. Until then.